This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Master Chief Constructionman John McCulley, McCulley served as a Navy CB during Vietnam and fought in the Battle of Dong Shui. During the battle, his battalion thought he was burned alive, but he escaped and spent over 48 hours on the run, hiding from Viet Cong forces without any food, water, or ammo. I'm uh, Johnny McCulley, M-C-C-U-L-L-Y, former Master Chief uh, of the CBs. I was Master Chief uh, for the U.S. Navy CBs from 1973 to 1977 when I retired. The CBs were formed in 1942 by Admiral Morrell. Uh, he was Chief of Civil Engineers at that time. It was formed to meet immediate construction needs throughout the world. But uh, prior to that, we had had small jobs going on, well, some large jobs also going on, but it was all being done by contract, especially the, what they call the PAB, the Pacific Naval, PNAB, Pacific Naval Air Bases in the Pacific. Uh, those people were on Midway, Guam, Wake Island, places like that. They were very much in danger out there with the Japanese attack uh, because if they, were, if they offered resistance and they were captured, they'd be tried as, as guerrillas because they were not in the military. Uh, that, that idea came to origin uh, in World War One. They had a construction regiment formed at uh, Great Lakes Naval Station at, uh, in Great Lakes, Illinois. And that was filled up and, and started by, a, at that time, a Lieutenant Allen and, and some other people, uh, later Captain Allen, Captain Smith, and some of those people. Later in 1937, they were on staff at the uh, Naval Facilities Engineering Command, or at that time, the Bureau of Yards and Docks. The, the nomenclature of the name changed in, in 1965, I believe it was. But uh, same organization doing the same work. The idea of, of having a construction force to go forward and, and do work, uh, the men at Great Lakes 
originally was just to work at Great Lakes building housing, uh, housing at that time, so uh, being tents and such as that to take care of the influx of all the recruits coming in there. They got pretty good at their job, so during, near the end of the war, they went to uh, France. They put uh, some of the antennas on uh, the Eiffel Tower over there for the Marconi Wireless and also did some peer work in France. But after the war, after World War I, they was basically established, and they weren't known as CBs at that time. But that put the idea in this, these lieutenant lieutenant commanders' heads at, at that time. So they inserted these plans and the, these, these ideas into the war plans, and they were serving on Admiral Morrell's staff. Admiral Morrell was the chief civil engineers uh, during, all the way through World War II. I joined the Navy in 1947, and uh, August 1947, I was 17 years old. Uh, we had a different outlook on life than a lot of people have today. You know, uh, our older brothers had all been in service. We had to get in there. So I joined the Navy, I went out to San Diego to recruit training, I received orders to a destroyer uh, ship, and the ship came in. And they said, no, we're not taking anybody aboard. We're being decommissioned. So I was still sitting over at the receiving station. And uh, that was there in San Diego. One day, the bosun came out and read a set of orders, said the following men will muster in the morning with their sea bags and go to Port Hunenemi, California. Well, that's Port Wainemi, we found out later. And uh, we uh, went up there and... We rode the train up. We arrived. They took us out. The truck picked us up, took us out to the base. They said, fall in. Of course, we were all just raw recruits right out of boot camp. We fell in like we'd been taught uh, according to height and, and two ranks. And, and there we were. And the guy came out, split us down the middle and say, you men on this side, you're going to be electricians. You men on this side are going to be drivers. That's the way they classified you. All, all the tall men was on our left, so we all... All the tall people end up as equipment operators or construction drivers, bulldozers, cranes, such as that. For years, we had all the short people as electricians. And good classification system worked great for me. I was very excited to think that a young boy like myself at that time, uh, remember that, that I had was born in 1930 here. I grew up through the Depression and, and World War II. Uh, we didn't have near the luxuries that we have today. Uh, for a young kid like that to be given a bulldozer and a truck and things like that to go out there and learn how to operate, I thought it was great. That was the best toys I'd ever had. At that time, when I first went in, of course, we were, were in a peace situation. You know, after World War II, the drawdown was was uh, very rapid. Uh, we if I recall correctly, in, in uh, 48, long and narrow, we only had about 2,000 CBs worldwide, very, very few. And uh, I was stationed on Guam up, um, early 1958 until 1951 with the 103rd Naval Construction Battalion out there. Uh, we only had about 200 people in that whole battalion. We had detachments that went 
Okinawa and did some work. We had detachments go down to Karor, which is in the Western Carolina Islands down there, did work. But uh, the main battalion stayed there on, on Guam itself. Myself and about 16 men, 16 CBs, went up to what they called JCA, Joint Communication Activity at that time. Later, a Naval Communication Command. We took care of the roads there, uh, the antenna fields, put in new antennas, uh, 60 and 90 foot poles with antennas on them for communications. That was one of the largest communications in the, that we had outside the United States at that time. It basically maintenance, uh, road maintenance, equipment maintenance, such as that. Uh, we had a typhoon hit there in 1949. October 49, Typhoon Eileen almost leveled, well, it leveled everything on the island. It didn't level the island, but it leveled everything on the island. And uh, it was, uh, you got a lot of experience as a, a young man, uh, I did anyway, from uh, drilling holes to to blast for coral, uh, operating dozers, road graders, rollers, cranes, shovels, uh, such as that. And for a long time, I was the only petty officer as a, a third class uh, I was the only petty officer, CB petty officer up there at that station. So uh, I felt I had a lot of responsibility, a real challenge. And, and I think that's what keeps a, a lot of CBs going is, is that challenge. You know, they, they've always got a, a job to do. And uh, when they do that job, they can see it. Uh, it's, it's there for other people to see. If I'd have got aboard that destroyer, and went to sea, I would have probably did one enlistment to the Navy and got out because it only leaves a, a wake behind and it soon disappears. But those roads the CBs built, they're there forever. At one time, we were drilling wells out in, the, in uh, Arizona and New Mexico and, and some of the desert areas out there uh, for the Indian uh, tribes. Uh, and that's that's great work. You're doing something for somebody. You're helping somebody. You're teaching them. Uh, one thing we were required to do was to give a, a, a 30 to a 45-minute class on road building or some profession of the CBs without saying a word. That was to eliminate the, any language barrier. You get up there and, and with with tinker toys or something, you, you show people how to do things and, and, and do it all by sign language and never say a word to them. And uh, so that they can do it. You know, we drill wells in, in Vietnam. We drill wells in, in, in Saudi, Somalia. Uh, everywhere the CBs go, they, they do something for the people. And, and, and that's good, good relations, you know, good public relations for the CBs in public relations for the United States. It seemed like the, the longer I stayed in and the more I, I studied the CBs and the more I was a CB, uh, prouder I was of them. You know, it, 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 it grows on you. And it's, it's a great feeling. I think it's the uh, way the CBs work, normally in teams, uh, not that, you know, those are operators out there operating by himself and their truck drivers working by himself and such as that. But several dozers are, are in there accomplishing the same job of moving the earth uh, or on scrapers, uh, pans, uh, such as that. They're moving the earth. Uh, so it's the teamwork and, and the, 
the togetherness of the CBs. So when they eat, sleep, and work together, uh, remembering in, in the 50s, throughout the 50s, we deployed uh, as mobile construction battalions and were gone from home for nine months at a time. Uh, if you're single, that wasn't too bad. If you're married, that was kind of that was a tough life. But while you're deployed, you had your your friends in the battalion, your, your people you worked with, you lived with them every day, and, and, and they grew just like a family together. You knew that the man next to you could could take care of himself and help take care of you, and you you could do the same, and and that that grew on you knew what your abilities was. You could do anything as long as you just kept on working at it. One time I had a, a commanding officer. He had a sign over his door that said, God created one indispensable man. That was Adam. But but that doesn't apply to all CBs. We, all of us were indispensable the way we looked at it. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. It started out very small in, in Vietnam. Uh, actually, it was in uh, the CB teams, the Originally, they were called STAT teams, CB Technical Assistance Teams, changed their name, uh, changed the designator in uh, 1964, uh, and uh, to just CB teams. Uh, they had worked some in, in 
South and Central America and, and West Africa, places like that before very small steel. Uh, they went into Thailand, Thailand, Vietnam. And that's when it really became a big part of, of the CB's life. And it was a, uh, like most uh, small units, uh, the smaller you are, the closer together you are. Uh, we had uh, 13 men on the CB team. It was the officer in charge and the chief assistant officer in charge, usually two builders, a uh, builder being a carpenter uh, and uh, two, uh, two mechanics to take care of the equipment, two equipment operators to operate the equipment with steel worker, steel workers, a welder, uh, any type of steel work. Uh, utilitiesman for plumbing, water purification, all that. Corman for the medic and electrician. So we we had all the, all the jobs covered in there with those thirteen men. We also had cross training. In other words, every, people were were trained in in water purification. You were trained in construction of buildings and block laying and such as that. Uh, some of our teams worked on people-to-people, what we call people-to-people programs uh, through USAID. Uh, that's where they went into a village and, and not attached to another military command within that village or anything. They, they worked with the local natives and to build uh, schools, uh, facilities, uh, public facilities for them, such as that, uh, the corpsman or the medic uh, providing uh, medical attention uh, Many of those people had never never been to a doctor in their life. So that was one phase of a CB team in Vietnam. The other phase was we had working for the support of the Special Forces, the Army Green Berets, that was building their camps up and down the Cambodian borders, building or improving their camps, I should say. Uh, we'd go into a place and uh, build a camp for the Special Forces A team had 12 men, so we were almost identical in our, our abilities as far as people, and, and, and they were well-trained people. Their mission was a little different than ours. Their, our mission was to go in there and build a decent place for them to live, plus a decent place for their Vietnamese, uh, what we call the CIDG, the Civil, Civil Irregular Defense Group, or the uh, Rough Puffs, uh, that's a regional popular force. Uh, had many different names, but basically uh, militia-type people, uh, from two to 400 of those people in each camp. Uh, they got bare essentials. Got a building with the roof over it, uh, sleeping areas uh, that they could roll out their mat on, their Tommy mat, and place where they could rest when they came back Patrol, they'd go out for patrol maybe two or three days at a time, sometimes a week at a time, come back in, get a little rest, get food, and go again. The Special Forces was the advisors to these people, the military advisors to them. The CB Team 1104 had just finished, uh, was in the process of finishing up a, a camp at Ben Soy, west of Tay Ninh. And that was saying, uh, Late May, early June of 1965, the on June the third, 1965, Frank and some of the other men moved over to Dong Swai. 
myself, I went to Saigon. Well, I stayed at Ben Sawyer two or three more days to, to finish up some odd jobs that we had there. And a couple of other men stayed over there with our equipment at that time. We had some men on rest and recreation, so they did not go to Dong Swai. I went to Saigon for two days uh, to get a little rest, get a hot bath, first one in a couple of months. And then uh, Frank told me to take a few days. I took two. I thought that was long enough. I got homesick, went up and, and joined them at uh, Dong Swai. Uh, that was the, uh, I must have got in there on the, on the 8th of June. So I had only been in that camp. That was my second night in the camp when we got hit. I wasn't real familiar with the camp, although I had scouted it out, uh, checked where the airfield was, found out where the gravel was, where we was getting ready to do concrete work, building and stuff. So I knew where the gravel was. It stacked up down by the runway, uh, the runway being a wide spot in the road, about a kilometer. Uh, let's see, that would be uh, south of us, I guess, uh, or east. Anyway, about a, a kilometer away from the, the camp. And uh, I'd look for uh, some uh, sand. Uh, wasn't much sand around there, but I had seen some. And the reason I mention that, it's, it, it comes into play later on in, in my story here. On June the 9th, 1965, uh, as I said earlier, my second day in camp, the, uh, I had to, to watch from midnight till 2 o'clock in the morning. I uh, woke up a little early, of course, uh, oh, Navy guy, we always relieved to watch early, you know, at least 15 minutes early because, uh, and uh, so about 11.30, I was up. Uh, the uh, special forces man that I was relieving on watch slept down at the end of the, the building where I was sleeping in. We all slept, and I have to clarify a little bit on that. We, we slept in, in whatever was available in these camps. Uh, this was happened to be a, a tin roof building. Uh, no insulation or anything, just a corrugated metal roof and corrugated, corrugated metal sides down to about a foot above the ground and then and then just earth floor. But it was comfortable to get in out of the rain if it was raining or uh, out of the sun if it was sun was shining. He was uh, down at the end of the building, uh, and he'd made a pot of coffee for me and everything, so I got up and assumed to watch uh, we had to call in every hour we reported into Saigon. Uh, or actually, a, a report went to a, a radio down at Nui Ba Den, uh, which was uh, Black Virgin Mountain down there. So I had basically relieved him about a quarter of uh, walk to Berm, uh, around the Berm, around the camp, uh, our portion of the camp, and uh, made sure that the Vietnamese people that, that was on watch out there was awake and alert, and they were. And came back into the building, picked up my coffee cup, and the first mortar round hit. And uh, then we took, this was about a quarter of 12. If they'd waited 15 more minutes, well, I'd have been, I'd already made my report to Saigon, and, and they just thought we was all safe and sound out there for another hour. But the first rounds hit the rice storage building where Captain Stokes, the commanding officer of the Special Forces team, Marvin Shields, and some other people slept in that. Uh, that was their quarters. Wounded some of them. Uh, the captain was wounded severely uh, as he came out of the building, mortar rounds hit, and it broke his legs and his arms. Uh, 
he was really disabled right there, but he was uh, still alert, very alert, and kept his wits about him. Of course, I said I woke everybody up, but when you when you're under that kind of attack, you don't have to wake them up. Just hit, hit it, you know, and, and they're gone. People grabbed their weapons. We always slept with our weapons. Uh, at that time, we were carrying M14 rifles. Uh, grabbed our rifles and, and headed for the berm. Berm being a earthen wall approximately four feet high around the, our portion of the camp. The mortar rounds, rocket rounds kept coming in. Uh, the second and third one, the ones, in fact, the ones that uh, broke the captain's uh, legs uh, hit our uh, our medical supplies and our communications in that part of the camp, knocked them out completely, our main communications. So we, I got outside, got to the berm, uh, Captain Stokes, we got him in a foxhole there. Uh, like I said, he, he couldn't walk, he couldn't fire, but he, he could still uh, keep his wits and tell us uh, what he wanted done. I checked the line. Uh, he asked me to check the line, make sure everybody was okay. Uh, checked the line, got people positioned in, in place where where he thought they'd ought to be. Uh, Shields, Hoover, and I fired uh, M79. Uh, M79 being a 40-millimeter grenade launcher, basically. Uh, we was firing that into the gunfire flashes that we could see. And Captain called for me to come back over by where he was at. I went back over there and kept feeding him information on, on where we sat. And Frank moved in to where, around where uh, Hoover and them was. I'm not sure exactly where because it was dark, you know. But, uh, but Frank can tell you where he was at. And uh, this went on for about two, two and a half hours. Very heavy fire. Uh, your adrenaline is pumping so fast you don't feel anything hardly. Right. The shrapnel hit me in the back and the arm, and we were getting low on ammo. Uh, our ammo trailer had caught on fire. Uh, we we had a little slack period. Uh, fire let up a little bit, uh, and Shields uh, went around and, and salvaged some ammo and, and brought it back, distributed it as he went down the line. Then the firing all started very heavy again. Myself, uh, my M14, uh, Got uh, phosphorus on it from a flamethrower. I imagine it was a flamethrower anyway. The phosphorus sprayed to our, our down the berm. Got on the, the stock of the M14, and I was out of ammo. So uh, one of the sergeants uh, found a 57 recoilless rifle. Uh, he loaded, and I fired that, uh, knocking out some machine gun positions that kept, it seemed like you'd knock it out, and, and by the time you pulled your your 57 recoilless back down and, and look up, they'd have another one sitting in the position, although you had seen it actually blow out. Uh, and uh, I believe they, they had three or four in there anyway. The, uh, this, this went on for until 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, it seemed like. Uh, I was hit uh, in the right arm. I, I took a round through the right arm in my shoulder area. Sergeant, Behind me, saw he'd been hit. He looked and he said, "No, that's that's your meat." You know, I mean, it it splattered him, uh, but I didn't even feel it. Basically, you know, your 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 adrenaline's pumping and, and you're you're so busy, you, you don't really feel the pain or anything like that. At least I did. Now, some of them might have felt it, but not not I. And uh, so it, it was really getting heavy. Uh, I said, "I'm going around and get 
see if I can get some more grenades. We were out of grenades. We throw a rock out. And when a rocket hit out there in the grass, they'd jump up because they thought it was a grenade. And I had a, a 38 pistol I found there. And I fired that at them. And uh, so we were in desperate need of ammo. And I went around and got the grenades. I got, we took some more mortars around there, and I was knocked down. I laid there for a second and got up. And when I got back around there, the men were pulling out uh, Captain Stokes and Marvin Shields, Sergeant uh, Ham, or excuse me, Private Ham, our only private in the 5th Special Forces over there, Private Ham, and uh, they were taking Captain Stokes over to join the, the rest of the camp. So we were, that camp was sort of split in three, uh, three ways, uh, district headquarters, the LLDB, the, the Vietnamese Special Forces, and us down at one end. And then we had a little triangle in there with uh, some armored cars in it, Vietnamese armored cars. The Viet Cong came between myself and, and where, where Shields and, and Larry Iman and Hand was taking Captain Stokes and came through with a flamethrower. When he swung around on me with the flamethrower, I dove over the berm. And later on, uh, when the men got, got into Saigon, they got lifted out the next day. When they got back in Saigon, they, they said, said I didn't make it. They saw me get it with a flamethrower. And uh, I surprised them the next day when I came in. But uh, I crawled back over the berm, worked my way through the fence, and went out through the village and uh, found two soldiers over there uh, in the, I guess it'd be the the area of the camp closest to the road, I'll put it that way, because directions were a little mixed up in there. But uh, I found two soldiers, uh, Vietnam, Vietnam soldiers. They had a th an old thirty caliber machine gun, and uh, we took it, got underneath the house over and right across the road from the camp and opened fire on the Viet Cong that was in our portion of the camp and about 30 rounds, and we were out of ammo. And we were being bombed by our planes. The house was on fire, so we decided we'd better get out from under there. Uh, this house was built up about a foot, foot and a half off the ground, so we had room to lie underneath it. Or we took the gun apart, laid it up on the, on the sill under there, and started the, what we called uh, escape and evasion tactics, uh, working our way out. One of the uh, soldiers got, uh, he was spotted by, by one of the Viet Cong and, and, and shot there in the town as we rounded a corner. And in a, I called it an alley, but it was really a street about eight or 10 foot wide. Uh, while I and, and the Vietnamese was cutting through the town there, uh, here came a, a basically a, a squad, uh, looked like eight or 10 of them anyway, a Viet Cong. Uh, coming down the, the street almost head on to us. I dove underneath a, a pig pen. And people say, how do you get under a pig pen? But in a lot of those Asian countries, they build them pig pens up two feet or so, maybe three feet off the ground and have a uh, bamboo floor in there with uh, bamboo poles and, and it's got holes in it where all the mess from the pig goes and they wash it off every day. They pretty clean about keeping their animals and everything. But here I am underneath that pig pen and that mud and and 
I was barefooted because I had on white tennis shoes. The reason I wore white tennis shoes, I'd wore combat boots all day, you know, and you take them off at night and you sleep in your tennis shoes, they're a little lighter. Well, these happened to be white ones, and I knew people could see them, so I kicked them off over in the camp as, as we was evading out of there. The Viet Cong did not see me under there. They, I guess they thought nobody would be stupid enough to get in a pig pen, you know, but uh, they went by me, and, and that's when the one soldier was, was shot. Me and the other soldier made it about another 50 feet, and we came to a, a rice storage building, although I didn't know what it was at that time until we got inside of it. But it had a, a transom over the door, about a foot uh, over the door, and it was about uh, two foot square. And how I did it, I'll never know, but, but my right arm uh, by that time was almost useless, and I'd had not only the, the round to it, but I'd had a lot of shrapnel wounds in it and, and then to my back, and, and my left arm wasn't quite as bad. But I jumped up and pulled myself through that hole, and, and their building was full of about 50 kilo uh, weight uh, or 100 pounds of, of rice sacks. So that made a good place to hide. And uh, the soldier and I stayed in there till about daylight, and this was probably 4.30 or so when we got in there, so an hour, an hour and a half. Our planes came in bombing, strafing, because the VC had the town. I did not know it at the time, but Lieutenant Williams, who was the executive officer of the Special Forces team, he and the other members over there had, was running out of ammo, and they was hollering for help, and, and uh, the uh, Sky Raiders were coming in and, and bombing, uh, trying to keep the VC out of their compound. Our compounds actually joined with, uh, with a, maybe a 20-foot separation between them. And so that's why they was bombing all the way around, and, and I was in the bomb zone. All of a sudden, the building just disintegrated. Just The bomb hit close enough that it just blew it down. So here I was looking around and figured, boy, I'm really exposed here. So across the road, uh, or this small alley thing, into a house. All the houses had been vacated. I mean, the people had left out during the battle uh, or been driven out by the Viet Cong. And uh, I first looked at a, uh, a water tank, thought maybe I can get up in it and hide. The water tanks were built up about 8 or 10 feet off the ground, just a concrete uh, rectangular surface uh, up there, uh, tank. So then I looked, I saw bullet holes all in there, and I said, I guess they go through there thinking people hide in there and fire in there, so I didn't want in there. So looked out the front door of the building, and uh, the Viet Cong was setting up a, a machine gun position at the intersection of, uh, I think that was Route 1A and 13, at the crossroads of the camp there. And they were setting up a, in sandbagging a machine, machine gun position there. This was very early in the morning, uh, you know, just daylight. So I thought about what my chance was of just staying in town or making an escape. I took off across the road. The, the soldier was following me everywhere I went, uh, the one a Vietnamese soldier I had with me. And uh, I ran right across that pile of sand that I'd seen the day before. So the building had been blown away, so I, I knew where I was at, basically. And uh, about... Uh, Two, three hundred yards in there, we came across the ranger camp, Vietnamese uh, strike force, or, or they, actually they were Cambodians, uh, mercenaries, that had been in our other camp with us over at Benzoi. Uh, 
they they were a lot of them dead. I found no no one alive in that camp. I looked for something that I could use some ammo or, or weapons. Uh, still had my forty five. Had no ammo for it, but but I had my forty five. Made a pretty good club, I thought. And uh, I found a five cell flashlight, so I picked it up and I held on that flashlight all the next day. And finally, I opened it up and it had no batteries in it. So that's that's the way people do out there. Uh, we worked our way down to a rendezvous point where we had supposedly gone to assemble for evacuations in case something like this happened. Uh, found a lot of VC down there. They were sitting around this uh, where the airfield was, this wide spot in the road. And uh, the gravel uh, crushed rocks that they had over there, they'd stacked up uh, in preparation for construction on that airfield, which we was going to do something like a little better field for them in there. They were sitting around on that, having breakfast, smoking cigarettes. We figured that wasn't no rendezvous point for us, so we pulled back from there, working away, and I was debating then whether to head for a food bin, which was about 37 kilometers away, or uh, or try to wait out the battle and see when when our troops was going to come in there and rescue. The uh, As we were going back towards uh, the road, uh, which would be east of the camp. I uh, came upon a uh, civilian out there pulling a, a parachute out of a tree, a small tree. And it was one of the uh, parachutes for a flare where they dropped incineraries the night before, where our planes dropped incineraries. Of course, they salvaged anything they can. Uh, the soldier went ahead and had a man and spoke to him, motioned for me to come up. I was very leery because I. I I didn't know whether I could trust him or not, but uh, they had the sawmill and uh, had a bunker underneath a large pile of lumber, and there was uh, two women, two men, and two little children in the bunker uh, underneath this pile of lumber, this stack of lumber, this sawed lumber. And uh, so they they got me in there. Uh, I asked them for water. They, they wouldn't give it to me. They'd point to my wounds and, and shake their head no. Um, he uh, was in there approximately an hour and a half or two hours and a large battle developed right across the road from us uh, the clearing over there where they had cut timber for this sawmill uh, we came out it looked like maybe a, a, a large company uh, Viet Cong was being flushed by, by our planes being strafed by them and they were coming towards us so we took off for the jungle Going out through there, our planes continued strafing. Of course, they, they had no idea that I or any any other friendlies were down there. Uh, but napalm hitting trees above your head, uh, you move out from under pretty fast. The one woman, when the planes were, were, when the bombs were really getting laid down, uh, they'd fall. And the Vietnamese would fall on their back and look straight up. I'd fall on my, my stomach and look straight down, you know, <laughs> covering up my eyes. But... Uh, the woman got hit, uh, knocked her kneecap off, and she punched her, uh, I suppose it was her husband, and uh, he pulled off his shirt and wrapped up at me, and, and we got up and took off again, and then little kids with us. Uh, to me, that's the uh, tough part of, of any conflict, is women and children. It's, it's hard on them. We made our way back, and we ended up right back at the uh, the bunker. 
uh, within a few minutes, uh, the Vietnamese had two chickens pulling the feathers out of them and cooking them. And I was amazed. And, and of course, I was dizzy because I had missed, you know, I'd been over 48 hours without any food or water, and I was getting lightheaded. But uh, they they gave me some bro chicken broth, but they still would not give me any water. They, they point to my wounds and say no. So I looked at my watch, and I saw it was 3 o'clock in the morning. And I either passed out or, or dozed off, but uh, this was the, the night of the 10th. Uh, I, I came to, it was about 6.30 or 7, getting daylight, and I was in that bunker by myself. That's when I got scared. All the rest of the time, I hadn't really been scared. I figured I could take care of it. Uh, we had some excellent training earlier in, the, in our training in, in Pickle Meadows, uh, Bridgeport, California, the Marine Corps Mountain Warfare Training Center gave us excellent training up there. And uh, here I was. I, I, all of a sudden, I was by myself. The Vietnamese was gone. I knew they had gone up to report me to the Viet Cong. And I got out of there after about three tries. I finally was able to get myself out of that hole. I found the five gallons of water up there, and I turned it up and, and took a big drink of it, and it popped out like like a sieve all over me. I was just, just coming out uh, through my, my glands. The, uh, then I watched, and I, I saw a helicopter come in and sit down up towards where our camp had been and uh, took off again, and no one shot at it. So I started working my way towards that. I went up uh, parallel to the road about 100, 150 feet off to where I wasn't exposed out on the road. Uh, I had always been trained and read about people getting shot when they're coming back through, the, through their own lines because the guys up there is on high alert and they, all they know is the enemies out there on that side where you're coming from. I got up near the, uh, there was a berm around that whole town there and uh, I got up near there. I saw two Vietnamese soldiers up there from the Maricat Division. Uh, they had the, uh, the helmets on, steel helmets. Most of it means the Rangers and the CIDG, they didn't have helmets or anything. They, they, they dressed with pajamas, and that was about it. But uh, they had the helmets on. I see the Bearcat, but I was concerned about them thinking I was the enemy because I thought I was dark after being through the pig pen and, and the rolling in the dirt and everything. So I unbuttoned my shirt and opened it up to where I could see white skin down here and hollered, hey. And they saw me and waved, and, and two of them came out to escort me in. They escorted me up to the helicopter, another helicopter that came in, and it was getting ready to lift off, in fact, two or three feet off the ground when I came out of the woods uh, near the landing zone, which was at the schoolhouse where where Marvin Shields and Lieutenant Williams had knocked out the machine gun the day before. And uh, as it came, as the helicopter raised up about three feet off the ground, I came out of the woods with these two soldiers escorting me, and they sat back down. I got, as I pulled myself on the helicopter, I see Frank Peterlin there in the stretcher on the chopper. And I was very happy to see him. Neither one of us knew anything about where the rest of the team was, how they made it out, or, or what. And uh, the pilots, of course, uh, you, 
they they gave me one of the gunner's uh, helmets with the earphones on it and the radio where I could talk to the pilot and uh, ask me uh, normal questions, name, rank, service number, unit, you know, and where was he yesterday? And I'm down there waving a, a flag, telling them, come and get me yesterday. That's where I was at. But when you get out and open the VC to shoot at you, if you stayed in the jungle, VC couldn't see you, but your rescue choppers couldn't see you either. So, so you have to make a choice: get shot at a little bit and hope somebody sees you. But it was a, a very, very quick ride over to Fook Pen. Uh, the they set up a aid station over, took good care of us from there to the Saigon Hospital, a week or so in there, to the Philippine Hospital for a couple more weeks, and then the Stateside Hospital in San Diego. So I was very weak. Uh, the doctors had told me I'd lose 75% of my right arm, 75% of the strength of my right arm. I, I couldn't even lift a, a, a cane like this on, on, when I started therapy. But, uh, you know, put your mind to it. You can get over it. When I pulled myself up on that chopper and saw Frank, the uh, first thing I asked him was, he okay? And, and of course, he, he got the bottom of his foot blown off, uh, basically right in the end step. And uh, he thought he was okay everywhere else, you know. And uh, but uh, but he couldn't walk. They had I found out later, and he would tell you how he got in and everything. Uh, they they carried him in there and and, uh, and got him on the chopper. Uh, he'd hid the night in a, in a hole just right outside the camp, and the VC went right over the top of it, basically. As Shields and them got Captain Strokes over to the other camp, they were in, in dire straits over in, in that portion of the camp, the same as we had been. Lieutenant C.Q. Williams, uh, who later was awarded the Medal of Honor also for that, that inst instance there, uh, was in charge, and uh, he helped direct fire. He asked for a volunteer to go help knock out a machine gun position. It was giving them havoc. A machine gun position was was in, located in a, a schoolhouse directly across the road from the district headquarters. Uh, Marvin volunteered. I already knew Marvin had been wounded several times, uh, shrapnel like most of us had because that metal was flying around a lot over. And uh, he and, and Lieutenant Williams made their way over to where they would flank the machine gun. And Shields was to load the, they had a rocket launcher. And as they, Shields would load the rocket launcher and CQ Williams would fire. He knocked out the machine gun position. And as they started to pull back, another machine gun to their flank, of which they had not known it was there, opened up on them. And Lieutenant Williams was hit in the arm, between his hand and his elbow and the lower part, a portion of his arm. Marvin was hit in his leg, basically severed his leg except for a few tendons. He tried to crawl back. He crawled into a building and commenced uh, to make a tourniquet for his leg to try to stop the bleeding. Two other men came out, two, two CBs came out and uh, carried and got him back over into the what they considered a safe position in the 105 pits where they was holding up at that time, uh, 105 howitzer pits. The, uh, they needed help, and, and a special forces man came out and got him on his back and carried him 
restway and this was when they were going through a, a little draw under a fence there. Carried him on. And he died just prior to getting on the helicopter on the rescue. And the helicopters came in around 11 o'clock. And uh, the medic treated him, tried to do everything he could to, to save him. Uh, Shields was uh, very alert and awake. Uh, told the corpsman, uh, the medic, uh, treat me with care. I'm fragile, you know. And, and he thanked everybody for uh, all the CBs and, and special forces for helping him and uh, just went under. Fook Den, that was an aid station. They treated me there and then took me down to Saigon Hospital, and that, that's where I got the story on it. Uh, and, of course, uh, Captain Stokes uh, was taken back to, to the Philippines and in the hospital there at the same time I was, and he and I discussed it back there also. It's difficult. Uh, when, when you see it happen or when it happens right in front of you or something, I think you can accept it easier because you're so busy. You, you know that you have to do something. You have to go ahead with life. You have to, to keep fighting. You have to protect the people, uh, that type of thing. When you're out of it and hear about it, it's a little tougher. You're lying there in the hospital bed, and they, you get the word, and, and it's, it's tough. The, uh, when they carried me into that Saigon hospital on the stretcher, I met uh, about four of the men coming out of the hospital, four of our people. And, and it shocked them. They thought I was a ghost because they, they had seen that flame floor get me. Uh, but uh, we had good people. We lost uh, two CBs and three special forces there that night, five out of 20 Americans that was there. That's tough, uh, real tough. Casualty rate was, was very high on that. Uh, the, uh, I went back to Vietnam uh, on two other deployments, uh, plus some visits in there uh, later on in, in the years. And uh, we never, we, we'd come under attack once in a while, but never anything that severe and that strong and that long of a, an attack again. Uh, you know, you can take, take a few rounds and you can throw a few rounds back, but, but, but that, was, that was a long, long battle. It seemed like forever. But you aren't conscious of that right then. You're, 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 the time passes so rapidly because you're busy uh, firing, protecting the people, protecting yourself, uh, watching for the enemy. Uh, you don't have time to, to, to worry or, or be concerned. It's later when you're back there and said, how in the world did I get out of that? And then you start worrying about it. When I was in the hospital in Saigon, when them special forces sergeants come in there and uh, team sergeants and things like that from other camps that I had known or, or they had heard of us or something, they come in there and, and say, you guys are the most. You know, you stood there flat-footed and fought. So we've never had anybody do that with us before. You know, the special forces were an elite bunch. They thought they was the only one that could do that. Great bunch of guys. Don't get me wrong. They're great. But uh, the CBs... Uh, was right there, uh, special forces uh, that that I, I worked with over there in Vietnam and, and Ben Soy, and then I was down on the Kai Kai with uh, went on a patrol down there for a few days. Uh, Frank and I did uh, earlier in the in the uh, game. We was trying to survey to to build another camp for this special force way down south there, 
And uh, it took us almost a week to get in there and, and gather up 600 Vietnamese to to help escort us in there. So that's you, you don't you don't think about the danger. You think, hey, this is the mission. Here's what I've got to do. I've got to go over and find out how high the water gets, where I'll know how much earth I've got to get to to raise that camp out of the water on the, and this down the delta. Things like that. You don't think about uh, what if somebody shoots at me. Hey, somebody shoots at me, I'm going to shoot back. Saigon was a, a declared a, a safe city, no fire zone. But if somebody shoots at you, you're going to shoot back. Uh, we made that mistake when we first went in there. Uh, said no weapons in Saigon. So our weapons was all packed away in a neat box and everything. And uh, somebody threw a grenade in the back of our truck. Had uh, three, four people in the back, two in front. And a little girl come bounce along the sidewalk there one morning, and, and uh, the men was on their way to work, and she tossed a, a loaf of French bread in there, and a grenade rolled out of the bread. And, but reaction. Uh, Soup Zach, my electrician, our electrician, uh, grabbed that grenade and tossed it out the back. He got wounded a little bit, and one of the other men got wounded a little bit with it. But nothing serious. And, so that's, that's reaction and training. How old was this girl? Probably about 16, but nobody could shoot her because she, she was in the crowd. Nobody had a weapon. That day, we opened the weapons box. We issued the weapons, ammo, and we lead. We were working building hard stands at Tonsonut Air Force Base, their air base of Saigon International, actually. At that time, this was when we first arrived in there. And uh, we everybody had a weapon. and. So from then on, our tactics changed. Before that, we'd straggle to work, make sure nobody uses the same route twice, don't set a pattern, uh, you know, keep people to where they can't track you all the time, and go uh, all go together. We issued those weapons. Thirteen men in that weapons carrier. I don't know if you know what a weapons carrier is, but like a pickup truck, and so we had thirteen. 13 weapons sticking out of it. It looked like a porcupine coming down the road. Nobody ever threw anything at us again. So, so you, you learn very quickly. I see CBs and you give them a job and they say, they don't say, I don't have the equipment. I don't have the money. I don't have the resources. They say, okay. And they go do the job. If the, They'll, they'll beg, borrow, or steal the equipment. They'll, uh, they'll get the resources somehow, but they'll do the job, and they'll do a good job for you. As a young man in the CBs and as a petty officer in the CBs and as chief and master chief in the CBs, they were the greatest. You've always got little problems, but, hey, you can keep them straight. I had been master chief at, at the facilities engineer command headquarters for four years. I had my 30 years in, and I had had several senior and master chiefs want to stay beyond 30 years, and we had a mandate. No one goes beyond 30 years because we, we need to open up the ranks and let some advancement come in, you know, Got a chief down there. You got a first class down there wanting to make chief. You got a chief wanting to make center chief. You got them center chiefs wanting to make master chief. So you go out when you got 30 in. 
And I had preached that to them and, and made sure that no one stayed in over 30. And when my 30 came up and uh, a couple of people asked me about, will you stay for over 30? I said, no, I couldn't do it. But, but yes, I thought I, I would be lost uh, when I left. I just lived uh, down the road from our headquarters. At that time, we were over in Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, I, I think I was back out there two or three times a month anyway, have coffee visit and such as that. And I worked five years commercial, uh, producing sand and gravel for all these tunnels here in the, in the district uh, for the metro tunnels. And uh, went back to work for the engineering command as civilian and, and stayed with them until 1994. And, uh, and that was like being back in the CBs. When I went to Kuwait and visited those four battalions over there, it was, I could just turn back the clock and see myself as a 17, 18-year-old on Guam, 19-year-old. Same little problems, you know. Have I got a place to sleep? Have I got food to eat? You know, that's your only worries. You always got work. You never run out of work. But, um, I, you know, I said earlier about the, the wake that a ship leaves behind, and, and we need those ships, but those ships have a hard time getting along without the Seabees because they need a place. To, and the Desert War was very evident of that. They, they go over there. They got fuel. They got tankers to carry them the fuel and everything. But if they want mail, they have to land it somewhere. And then the cod flights or the choppers pick it up and take it from the shore out to them. Thousands and thousands of tons of mail. If they need supplies, they have to get them in their airfields and such as that that we build for them. That's the way they get it. And uh, so it's, it's very, very evident. They, they need, need to see these. They, they won't give you the money, but, but they'll help you. Unveiling the... CB Memorial over there by on Avenue of Heroes there entering Arlington Cemetery. When I unveiled that in 1974, that was one of the proudest moments I think I've ever, ever had. Today, uh, in, in this time and age, has, has changed a lot since I was a young man. But if, if a young man puts his mind to it and joins any military, and takes a choice of his liking, something that he feels he's, he's capable of, of doing, or takes a test. Now, I mentioned earlier how they classified us by saying, you 50% are going to electric, and you, you 50% are going to uh, driver school, uh, equipment operator school later. The, uh, they, they have very good classification programs now where they can get a person classified, get him in a program that he's, that he likes and, and that he's capable of. But, but I advise him to, to get into something because self-discipline and the training he gets will be worth it the rest of his life. It, it's, it's great. They get much better pay than they used to. They get a lot of benefits, uh, college benefits, and such as that. So uh, I really encourage him to get in there. If he's wanting to be in the engineering field, build things uh, is some of the best training in the world. And I've had many people tell me that some, some of the people that, that we've had in the CBs uh, have, have gone a long ways. Uh, one, of, one of our former, former mass chiefs worked for one of the world's largest construction consortiums right now. And uh, he, uh, he does well.
I've never seen a, a CB who, who wasn't proud of being a CB. And I'll give you a real good example of it. When they were building the, the CB memorial over there, we had a contractor doing it. And I had just reported in back here in Washington, D.C. In, in September, August, September of, of 73, and in the process of erecting it. The men laying the, the stone over there, we had the concrete poured, and then they were setting the stone around it to marble. And uh, we were concerned about them getting behind schedule because we had set that for Memorial Day 1974 to un for unveiling it. And we had all kinds of problems because we had a shipping strike and everything else, and this stuff being shipped in. So the contractor sent some more masons down there to give them a hand to, to speed up things. They ran them off. Why? One of the masons that was working down there was a World War II veteran of the CB. Another one was in between the Vietnam and, and World War II. One of them was a, a Korean War veteran. So the three masons on there said, we'll do it if we have to work all night, every night. So we're CBs, we'll get it done. So even when they go away from us, they're, they're still there, you know, they're part of us. That was Master Chief Constructionman Johnny McCulley. If you liked this episode, check out our interview with Doug Morrell, nicknamed The Legend. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rule Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th-century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th-century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.